We're not defining markets as products or technologies or use cases or verticals. You know, we're defining a market as a group of people and the job they're trying to get done. And then when we talk about customer needs, we're not talking about pains, gains, exciters, delighters, requirements, specifications, value drivers, benefits, features. You know, we're, what we're talking about are the metrics people use to measure success when getting a job done. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Tony Ulwick. Now, Tony developed a process called Outcome-Driven Innovation, ODI. And in 1999, he described this process to Clayton Christensen. He of the author of The Innovator's Dilemma. And Clayton Christensen really liked the whole outcome-driven innovation process. But he said to Tony, I don't like the idea of customers having a process. So let's say that for argument's sake, call it jobs to be done. The customer has a job to be done. And what we can now do is we can innovate to solve the problem, solve the job. What is the job the customer needs to get done? And we can, we can innovate around solutions for that. And then in his book, he used the phrase jobs to be done. And so now jobs to be done is a, is a theorem. And Tony's been doing this for 30 years. He said to me, he feels like a salmon swimming up the river. And he was saying before we were recording that he'd recently posted an article on LinkedIn and somebody had sort of said, well, you know, if you're right, Tony, why do the venture capitalists spend all this money and give it to startups? And why do those startups all trying to create product market fit? And why do they launch products? And why do they get consumer feedback? And then why do they pivot? If what you say is true, then all of that is a total waste of time and money to which Tony says, yes. So we have a chat today about his process. What are the jobs to be done? How do you identify unmet needs? And he's got some great case studies. We talk about Bosch and how Bosch launched a circular saw successfully into the North American contractor market. And also he's got a great example of a potato business that tried to craft a potato cereal, but couldn't. And fascinating is just... This whole, you know, does somebody buy a quarter-inch drill bit or are they after a quarter-inch hole? Which, of course, in the whole process, they're not actually after a hole either. They're trying to put up a shelf because they need to store some books. And it's this whole thinking back in a linear way. You know, you buy a kettle. Don't buy a kettle because you want hot water. You're making a cup of tea or maybe you're making a cup of coffee. And maybe you need a different temperature for your water. And then maybe you want to do it instantaneously. So you want something that keeps that water hot, but you would never know as a product builder, which parts of your product, what innovation, your product or service is going to make the difference. And one story that we didn't talk about in the interview, but came to mind to me was the Amazon's Kindle 
versus the Sony e-reader. And when they were launched, one of those products came from a consumer electronics business with a huge pedigree and brand awareness. And the other one came from a bookseller. But the complementarity or the innovation in the Kindle that made it the killer product was WhisperSync. And they were able to say, look, in the customer journey, there is an unmet need. You just, if you're going to have an e-reader, you just want to be able to buy books on the device. It needs to upload and download. We don't want any side loading. And that really, if you look at the products and featured those two products and what a number of books available at the time, it's a great example of one company really understanding the customer journey and the job to be done and the other company developing a product, maybe not in ignorance of that, but probably in ignorance of that and thinking about their product too narrowly. So a fantastic conversation with Tony. I gives enough information about how does this process work. And he also says right at the end that uh, there'll be links in the show notes that they've now made the book and the audio book of jobs to be done, what customers want are freely available. So there'll be links to those in the show notes at monkhouseandcompany.com. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Tony Elwick. I'm the founder and CEO of the innovation consulting firm Strategen. I live in Pompano Beach, Florida, and I've been in the innovation space for about 30 plus years, starting my career at IBM. And I started the consulting from Strategen in 1991. Fab. And so jobs to be done, I think Clayton Christensen, when I think jobs to be done, did you co-develop the idea? Did he nick it off you? How has that phrase or theory got into my head? Because it's yours. So you, in, you, you came up with this whole thing. I came up with the concept. I didn't name it. So yeah, the story goes like this. You know, I introduced the process I've developed, outcome-driven innovation, to Clay Christensen back in 1999. And what I explained to him is that we have two ways we can look at a market. We can look at it through the lens of the drill maker, or we could look at it through the lens of the hole maker, right? And this goes back to Levitt's quote, you know, people don't want the quarter-inch drill, they want the quarter-inch hole. And the beauty of looking at a market through the lens of the hole maker is that you can study a process, because now you're studying what the customer's trying to accomplish. You're not asking customers about products, you're not asking them how to make a better drill, you're asking them all the steps they go through and how they measure success as they try to create the quarter-inch hole. So he was fascinated with this because what we did is effectively make the underlying process the unit of analysis. And this brought a whole new set of insights to the innovation process. And what Clay did say, though, he says, I I don't like talking about this as like the underlying process because we don't want to say people buy products to get a process done. Why don't we say... They buy products to get a job done. So that's what happened. He introduced the concept in 2002 in his book, The Innovator Solution, and talked about making the job the unit of analysis. And that eventually evolved into a full-blown theory. So it may not be the, the kindest name for a theory, but, but it's stuck. Very good. And so why does everybody not do this? Why does still the vast majority of people say things like, you know, we need to have a thousand ideas and then we need to test them? What stops people? Is there something in the way the human brain's wired that makes this an alien concept, do you think? You've heard the quote, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, it's not a toaster, but a longer, a toast fork with a longer handle so they didn't burn their hands when they were toasting the bread. Well, but see, the problem with that saying is that a lot of people believe that customers don't know what they want, right? 
that's what it infers. What, what he really meant is people don't know what solutions they want. But what innovators often do is they conflate solutions with needs. They use them interchangeably. But of course, a solution satisfies a need, which means then we have to define what a need is. Now, the way we define a need is those metrics that people use to measure success as they go about and get a job done. So as you're preparing a meal, you want to minimize the time it takes to prep the food. You want to minimize the likelihood of overcooking, minimize the likelihood of undercooking. They're very specific, measurable outcomes that you're trying to achieve to get the job done. And do you know what? The interesting thing is, as you say it like that, every time you say one of those things, a product pops into my head that solves that specific problem. That's exactly right. Because people buy products to get jobs done. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so if we can study the market through that lens, we can gain a great advantage. But to your point or to your question, a lot of people don't think innovation is a process. And many of those, I should say, they think about innovation as a process of coming up with solutions that address unmet needs. But the way they go about doing it is they start with the solutions. Like you said, let's have hundreds of ideas and then check with customers to see which ones they'd like in the hopes that they'll satisfy unmet needs. And the reason they're going about it that way is because they don't know how to define all the unmet needs first, figure out which are unmet, and then just devise a single solution that addresses the top unmet needs. That would be ideal, right? And that's what outcome-driven innovation allows you to do. But it forces you to think about what a need is very differently. We've done a lot of research in this space. I think you'll find some of these data points interesting. But on product teams, over 80% of product teams don't agree on the best way to define a market. They don't define a market as a group of people getting a job done. They define a market as a product or a technology or a vertical or a use case or something else. And over 90% of product teams don't agree on what a customer need even is. Is it a specification, a requirement, a pain, a gain, an exciter, a delighter, a value driver? I could go on, right? There's 50 names of, of diff- different terms that are used interchangeably to talk about customer needs, as if any of those inputs somehow miraculously are going to result in a good output from innovation. And of course they don't. You know, we've got to be really careful how we're defining what a need is. And it's because people can't grasp the concept of what a need should be. It's it why they continue to struggle to to innovate. And that's why they experiment instead. They don't think it's possible to know all the needs and prioritize them and figure out which are unmet before you come up with the ideas. And so it is, obviously, because you've been doing it for, for 30 years. Have you got good stories? They've got some case studies to talk through. I mean, I, I know the, you know the story that I would normally jump to would be Clay and the milkshake, but you've been doing this longer than he had. So yeah, absolutely. And, and the milkshake story although entertaining, is a little misleading because most of what Jobs Be Done is about is to come up with the right product concept uh, to begin with, but not by studying the product, but by studying the job to be done. And, tr- and Clay tries to get at that, but what he, what he starts with is the, the notion that I want to sell more milkshakes. Well, if you want to sell more milkshakes, that's a different problem than saying, I want to create a product that really gets the job done really well. And that job is to get breakfast on the go. Oh, uh, so, so if you'd started with that, you might not have ended up with a milkshake. So he starts, he starts in a different place. He started with the product in mind as opposed to the underlying 
job that the customer's trying to get done. So if he would, and, and we've done this work, we've studied it with a company called ConAgra. They make breakfast products and we studied the job of consumers, commuters who are in their vehicles and they're trying to get breakfast on the go. And when you start breaking down that entire job, you can see where a milkshake might be a good solution, but you could also come up with other solutions that get the job done better. And in fact, you know, a lot of the innovations in getting the job done had nothing to do with the food product. It actually had to do with the service in terms of making sure you could prep it very quickly because people only have like six, seven minutes they're allocating to get their food. And if it's unpredictable and some morning it takes 10 minutes or 12 minutes, now they're late for work. Yeah, they're not going to turn up twice as early just to get a thing. That's right. And so it was interesting things like that. So the innovation didn't have to be, you know, add something to make the milkshake thicker. It was more like you know, make sure that your processes are set in place so that the expectation of receiving the food is consistently met. And so they could plan for it. They could plan it was going to be there in six minutes and they're not going to be late for work. When you did that work for your client, Conegro, did you say they were called? Did they end up developing a product on the back of your work? What did they end up selling as their ideal commuter breakfast? Yeah, well, it was interesting because a lot of the innovation on the product side was more led by this predictability for preparation. So they really struggled to come up with their potato company. So they really struggled to come up with a potato-based product that would get the job done better because the opportunity wasn't necessarily with the with what they're eating. It was with all these other aspects of getting the job done. So they experimented with a few things and eventually just gave up on the concept of creating a, a breakfast food that would satisfy the top on the outcomes because they felt like a, a potato product couldn't satisfy those needs. I mean, they, they are, I mean, they're slightly more up the chain than already having a milkshake to sell, but they, you know, they've got a raw material that they need to include in the product to make the solution sensible for them. And they just couldn't make that work. And that's right. But I suppose doing the work with you was, might've been frustrating, but better than creating a product and hoping people bought it. Well, that's right. So they, they knew better, right? They knew that they couldn't create a product that got the job done better because the job was much bigger than just eating the piece of food, right? The, the job is going to the location, getting in line, ordering the food, making sure the order is taken correctly, waiting for the food, getting your condiments, make sure what you get is what you ordered. All this stuff has to happen before you even open the, the bag and reach for your food, right? So you're studying the entire job the customer's trying to get done and, and instead of just the job, the product's getting done. I think one of the reasons why people don't use your process then maybe is because in that instance, somebody in that organization said, look, let's go and talk to Tony and find, let's map the process. But in other organizations, you just know that somebody high up in the organization said, sell more of this potato shit for breakfast. And somebody went, yes, sir. And went off and not, didn't design something that wouldn't work, but they had a narrow focus, which was to go and sell something, even if they didn't know the market was there, right? Or they, or they, constantly kept saying, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. Because you see things all the time where you just think, you're in a supermarket and you pick something up and you just think, well, why did they spend money developing this? Who were they thinking would buy this? Yeah, well, your point's well taken, right? And a, a lot of the, the use of this concept and tool is really on the marketing side. Like, how do you sell more milkshakes? Like, if you want to increase the revenue of milkshakes, well, let's go talk to people about and this is the way that Clay told the story. Let's go talk to people about how they, why they're buying milkshakes. Well, 
they're, they're bored. They're on a long commute. They want to savor the moment. They don't want to rush through something. They don't want to get too full. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to get the car dirty. These are all legitimate, right? And and if you can discover that people are buying milkshakes for that reason, then you could go market them that way. Yes. If, if that were indeed true. But what Clay said in story two is they tried to alter the milkshake. So he got into like product creation and mixed it and conflated it with marketing, right? But I, I see a lot of people today use jobs to be done to create demand, demand generation side of things. People buying my product to do something. What are they doing? And then I can just, if I can discover that, then I can market to that instance, right? And then maybe sell more milkshakes. Well, because actually they're hidden truth in that simple statement that you made is that most people have, most companies have no idea why people buy their product. I mean, I talk to mainly B2B businesses, but most of the time they, the executive team have very little idea why a company deals with them and doesn't deal with a competitor or deals with a competitor and doesn't deal with them. And, you know, so often it's the, it's sort of a complementarity that they see, you know, when you're talking there about the milkshake and actually it's about the service or, you know, it's, uh, I have to order it and it takes longer than six minutes and then I have to get the condiments. It's, they're, they're somehow they're, their definition of the product blinds them to the rest of the consumption process. You know, like estate agents tell us that they help people move houses or they sell houses. But nobody has ever, I don't think, in the history of the world, been persuaded to sell a house by an estate agent. You come to that decision to sell your house completely separate from any process of an estate agent. And then you ring up and you deal with the least worst one you can find. So companies have this very different view of their product than buyer's process. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And that's why it's important to understand it through this other lens. And when you look through this other lens, like I said, the world looks a lot different, right? We're not defining markets as products or technologies or use cases or verticals. You know, we're defining a market as a group of people and the job they're trying to get done. And then when we talk about customer needs, we're not talking about pains, gains, excited delighters, requirements, specifications, value drivers, benefits, features. You know, we're, what we're talking about are the metrics people use to measure success when getting a job done. So we can quite literally break down the job they're trying to execute, understand how they measure success, we can take all those statements, which are usually anywhere from 50 to 100 plus. Uh, we do a lot of B2B work. We do a lot of work with surgeons. And we study complex processes. They often have well over 100 outcome statements. And then we take these, we put them in a survey and put them out in front of the customers, hundreds of them. And we ask them to tell us how important each outcome is and their current level of satisfaction with the solutions that they use today. And with that information, now we have two data points. We can figure out along all those 100 plus dimensions, which ones are really important and not well satisfied by today's products. So we, in other words, you're figuring out precisely where the market's underserved, where we can help customers get the job done better. And if you discover a half dozen or a dozen or more unmet needs, then the question is, how do we solve them? Can we solve them, right? We, we know the opportunity in problem space. We've just identified it. Can we solve it in solution space? And that's the fun part. Like once you know what these unmet needs are, can you solve them? And the answer usually is resounding yes. I'll give you a quick example. When we helped Bosch enter the North American circular saw market, we studied the job of cutting a piece of wood in a straight line. Pretty simple job. Had about 72 different outcomes. We quantified it 
Um, and circular saws weren't new to the, in the North American market. So like Bosch are trying to come in and they're, look, they're trying to find a thing as opposed to just saying, ours are green, somebody else is a yellow. They've got to try and find something that makes us different. Well, that's right. Something that makes theirs better, that gets the job done better, right? So cutting wood in the straight line, we discovered the 72 different metrics people use to measure success and 14 of them were underserved in the market. So, which 14? You don't have to remember them all, but what were some of them? Oh, some were like minimize the likelihood of sawdust blowing up in the user's face as they're making the cut path. Another one was minimize the likelihood that the extension cord where it gets connected gets caught on the wood as they're dragging the cord behind them. Minimize the likelihood of cut cords because people do that quite frequently. They had, you know, minimize the time it takes to secure the saw in the rafters when you're putting it down after use, and so on. There was a bunch of them. But the question that the Bosch team asked was, which ones should we go after? And what I suggested to them is they go after all of them. The reason I said that is, if you're trying to enter the market at the same, you know, against the wall to Makita, established players, you're going to have to get the job done a lot better. If you get it done a little better, nobody's going to care, right? And, and I love asking this question. Like, would you switch from your favorite brand or product if another product got the job done just 1% better? Yeah, probably not. Maybe not 2% or 5 but at, at about 15% or so, you're going to go, yeah, you know, if it gets the job that much, done that much better, consider it. And so that's what we did with the Bosch team. And we held a night. Yeah, so you, those three brands that you mentioned, Bosch, DeWalt, and Makita. So in the UK, I would say DeWalt definitely, the tradesmen who turn up all have DeWalt gear. And Bosch is definitely a tool that I might buy for my Sunday afternoon DIY work. But I never see any of my tradespeople turn up with Bosch gear. Is it different in the US? It, it is different. Have they been able to bring that sort of German engineering and brand their product as a competitor to DeWalt and Makita? Yeah, they have. And that, that, and that was their goal. Because um, they already had the skill brand, if you're familiar with skill saws. Don't have that here. That We might have, but I haven't seen it. So Bosch owned that brand as well, but that was for do-it-yourselfers, so you could enjoy that on a Sunday afternoon. But they were going after the commercial market with the with this circular song. Just to finish up that story, what was so interesting, once we said, let's focus on all four of these unmet needs, it took the, a group of engineers about three hours to, to come up with solutions that addressed all those unmet needs. Like they said, and said, Tony, you know, it's not like we haven't had these ideas before. But the problem is we've had thousands of ideas before. And we didn't know that these 14 were the ones that would really matter. So when they were presented with the challenge of you know, solving the, these problems, they could solve them. They just didn't know that was the, the right combination that would get the job done significantly better. And so this is all knowable before you even start developing the product. Right? Bosch knew that that product was going to win because it had that set of features that addressed those needs that were determined to be unmet through the research by studying this job that the customer is trying to get done. So it brings predictability to the process. So instead of coming up with lots of ideas and hoping some might address some unmet needs, we're going to uncover all the unmet needs and then precisely surgically ideate around those needs to come up with a solution that addresses them. So you're you're securing that product market fit before development even begins. Just because the other thing that happens, I see it all the time, you know, when you say product market fit, it's they think they've got a product, they launch it, and then they realize they're going to have to pivot, they're going to have to change. But now they've spent half the money already. And so, you know, then people are 
panicking and wish they'd all this stuff that they now know they wish they'd known before. And you're saying they could have just known all of that before they launched the product and got the customer feedback. Well, that's exactly right. Because every time they iterate, they're out talking to the customers and they're learning more about customers' needs, right? And they're learning as they go and spending as they go and pivoting and iterating as they go. And it's the most expensive way to understand customer needs that I can imagine, right? Let's go study them up front. Let's break down the job they're trying to get done, understand how they measure success, quantify it, pick the top needs, and, and do it the right way. It's simple, logical, right? Makes perfect sense. But again, as, as you know, a lot of people just don't believe you can even bring predictability to innovation. So have you got another story? Because I love that Bosch story. You got another one? Sure. Yeah, we worked with a company called Kroll OnTrack. It was on, on track at the time. They are really good at retrieving data off a damaged hard drive. And so they wanted to enter the, the electronic evidence discovery market. And that market is the market for taking data off hard drives and having it used in legal cases in case you know, there were some legal issues with the organization. And so because they were getting data off hard drives, they thought their customer was still the IT people inside large organizations. And they created a product that could get the data off hard drives and, and provide it to the legal teams. Well, it failed in their first iteration, and it failed in their second iteration. And then Ben Allen, the CEO at the time, came to us and said, Tony, I've, I've read your book. It makes sense. Tell us, why do we keep failing? And so began analyzing the situation. We quickly found that they mistook who their customer was, first off. It's not IT people who are trying to get data off a hard drive. It's legal teams who are trying to find information that would support or refute a case. Very different. And then when you go to legal teams and ask them about that job and how they measure success, a lot of the success had to do with finding the data inside all this vast amount of information that they collect, finding the tidbits of data that related to the case and that would sway it in one direction or the other. So once they discovered that, they added a search capability to the data that they were providing the client which allowed them to go through and find that information. So it actually helped them get the job done. Third time was a charm. Became a $200 million business in their first year and a half or so. And they led that market for about 15 years. Ah, fabulous. So I like that. It's the uh, the white knight story. You know, here we've had two failures and then you come in and show them how it should have been done. Can you talk us through a bit about the process? So now people are thinking, that sounds brilliant. How do I go and approach this? What are the steps that you take to unpick this process and get some of these criteria? Well, the first thing is you have to determine who your customer is. Who is the job executor? Is it the IT people or is it the legal team, right? So that's an important decision to make because you're trying to create value for a group of people. We have to know who that group of people is. And, And the second step is to figure out, well, what job are they trying to get done? There's a couple ways to look at this. Companies often already have products. So they go out to customers and say, what job does my product do? That's okay. You, you could create a product that gets that job done better. But a better question is to ask, when you're using that product, what is the job you're trying to get done? Because you may be using that product in conjunction with two or three other products. It's like if you're a kettle maker, you, know, you can go out to customers and say, why are you buying my kettle? Well, I buy it to heat water to the desired temperature. All right. Well, you, can make a, you could just study that job and really make a great kettle, right? Or you could say, well, what other products are you using in conjunction with that kettle and what job are you trying to get done? In other words, 
don't tell me the job that product gets done. Tell me what you're trying to get done. Well, I'm trying to create a hot beverage for consumption, right? So I have all these other steps I go through to make that happen. And as the manufacturer of the kettle, you can go in either direction. You could stay narrow and say, let me just focus on what my product does and do that really well. Or you could go broader and say, well, let me focus on the job the customer's trying to get done because I'm already in that market. And if I focus on it more broadly, that gives me opportunities to grow more into, you know, into the market. And eventually, maybe I could create a platform-level solution that gets the entire job done, like Nespresso did, right, and Keurig. So that's the, this is just the first step. Yeah, immediately I started thinking of a Bosch kettle that we've got where you can say the temperature of the water is 70, 80, 90, or 100 degrees centigrade. And, and you can tell it that that's what you want to heat it to, and then you can press a keep it warm at that temperature button as well. And I'm just thinking about if I want to make a cup of tea, I want to make a cup of tea now. I don't want to wait five minutes while the kettle boils. So the ability to have the water at the right temperature helps me make a quick cup of tea. Uh, plays into that same notion, right? That it's part of a bigger job. So, so those are important. But th- what more important is it sets you up to figure out what the needs are next. So the second step is talk to customers, break down the job they're trying to get done, ask them how they measure success along each step of the way. And basically, what you're trying to the, the concepts like this you know, to get a job done better. Better means faster, more predictably, or a better result. That's all it can be. That's why there's automation. There's statistical process control and there's Six Sigma, right? These sciences that develop to help get any process done better. Well, the same thinking applies here. Let's just go ask people, what are they trying to achieve? Time-consuming aspects. What are they trying to avoid? What things go wrong? What makes it unpredictable? What leads to a poor result? And if we can get the job done fast and eliminate all the bad things from happening, we'll get the job done better. That's that's why we talk about the outcomes like cooking, you know, minimize the time it takes to cook the meal or minimize the likelihood of cooking it unevenly and so on. So once we've captured that list of statements, then you put them in a survey, go quantify it with hundreds of people where they can tell you which of those needs are important and unsatisfied. We have another step in there where we segment around the unmet needs. So instead of segmenting around demographics or psychographics or behaviors or attitudes, let's just segment right around unmet needs instead of using a proxy, right? So we can find segments of people like we did with Bosch. About a third of the market had those 14 unmet needs. And now you've got your target. Now I can go address those unmet needs with a solution. And since these are metric-driven, the engineers can quite literally measure the performance of their idea. To what degree does it minimize the time it takes to do this? To what degree does it minimize the likelihood that that bad thing happens? Right, so they can tell if they're eliminating the problem altogether or just putting a Band-Aid on it. It lends itself to the systematic creation of breakthrough products by doing it in this order. Right, It's just flipping the equation around. Instead of ideas first, let's go needs first. So, Tony, other than getting their hands on jobs to be done and what customers want, what other books do you recommend people pick up? Well, jobs to be done book that I wrote recently, we've made it available for free in both a PDF format and an audio book. We'll link to that in the show notes. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. And so that's just a great way to get up to speed. And we've also at strategen.com, you can see all the latest training materials and tools and things that we're putting together there for people who want to practice ODI inside their organization or for their markets. Very good. Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you very much for being on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. 
If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts, Thanks, and I will see you next week.